The title of this morning's message is The Messy Business of Covenant Keeping. We'll be looking at 2 Samuel 21. And our outline this morning is probably the simplest outline I've ever had for any sermon I've ever preached. It's basically we're going to read God's word, pray over God's word, introduce God's word, explain God's word, and apply God's word. That's the outline. Let's go ahead and read God's word together. Second Samuel 21, starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his blood guilt in his house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but were the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn uh, protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you or shall we kill any man uh, in Israel. So he said, what um, you say, whatever you say, I will do for you. Verse five, then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rispa, the daughter of Ai, I'm sorry, Ea, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, or Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up. Uh, for Adriel, the son of Barzili, uh, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, and all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains, poured on them from heaven and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day or the beasts of the field by night and David was told what Rizpah the daughter of Ea the concubine of Saul had done and David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead who had stolen them from the street of Bethshan where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged 
And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the uh, country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us your word that it may be read and heard for our profit, that we may be instructed, reproved, corrected, and by your grace trained in righteousness. We pray that as your word is preached, that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit so that we may behold your holiness, your severity, and mercy. We pray that your word would cause us to abhor our sins and repent of them quickly. And may we find great encouragement to believe your word for ourselves, to worship and trust you as a result, and to share your glories with others. We pray this by the authority of Jesus, our anointed Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Now let's introduce our text. In April, uh, in April, actually April 21st of 1988, the U.S. Senate approved reparations for Japanese individuals who were uh, captured in what some might call concentration camps, what we called relocation camps throughout the West in Colorado. If you guys remember your U.S. history, <clears throat> we took many Japanese citizens and uh, moved them from their homes, removed them from their homes, took away their homes, put them in prisons, basically, for a large part of the war. And it wasn't until 1988 that the U.S. Senate decided to give reparations of $20,000 per individual that was still alive to these Japanese citizens. Now, these Japanese citizens had taken an oath to not follow any foreign power, but to submit and to fight for the United States of America. And the United States, by implication, had also sworn an oath to protect its citizens. What the U.S. Senate decided in 1988 is that oath, that covenant, was broken by the United States government. And so we agreed to give $20,000 per individual uh, that was still alive. Senator Spark... Matsunga, a Japanese-American from Hawaii, almost wept as he recalled uh, the suffering attorneys and as he relayed the story of an elderly grandfather who was machine-gunned as he went out of, uh, over a fence to retrieve a ball for his grandchild. So the question can be asked, was this an appropriate reparation for United States citizens that were basically imprisoned and to this day, there's never been any documented occurrence of any Japanese citizen, U.S. citizen, that um, was proven to be a traitor of the United States. Many today would say $20,000 for people that were actually killed and had their livelihoods taken away from them was completely inappropriate, but it was something. In the text that we're looking at this morning, <clears throat> we have basically a covenant between the government of Israel as represented by Saul and a people group called the Gibeonites who were vassals or slaves of Israel. They had entered into a covenant. Raise your hand if you read, you got to read any of the background material leading up to today. Okay, a few of us. 
So those of you guys that read Joshua 9 and 10, you understand that this covenant was agreed to by Joshua and the Israelites and the Gibeonites agreed to become vassals, woodcutters and water carriers for the temple of Almighty God. But what we have before us is a passage that I think all of us would admit is difficult. In fact, um, many are embarrassed by this passage. Um, There are those that would deny um, the authority of God's word and point to this passage as one of the reasons why they cannot possibly believe in this kind of God that basically requires the death of innocent people in order to, as it were, appease the rain God. This sounds very much like the cultish practices of various pagan peoples. Uh, in the most cynical view of this passage, you have David trying to protect his throne by having the uh, progeny of Saul, his children, eliminated while keeping his hands clean. What are we to make of such a passage? Well, it's my contention, and one of the things I want to try to demonstrate for us from the text this morning, that often it's the most difficult passages in Scripture that reveal more about us and certain problems with our culture than they do about problems with God and his justice and his way of ordering things. So if we approach this text as it claims to be, and that is the very word of God, and if we approach it in its context that God is the one that initiates this process, and in verse 14, it seems like he approves of this process, then we need to come to the scriptures and try to figure out what is going on here, what is God up to, And if we have some issues with what God does, we need to ask ourselves what needs to be corrected in our own hearts. And so let's look together. We're going to just kind of move through this passage as we explain it, starting in verse 1, making various comments. Then we're going to come back and talk about its uses or its application. So let's start. Let's go back to verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. David inquired of the Lord. So there's a famine that no doubt, according to verse 10, is drought induced. You need to ask ourselves, what's the big deal about a famine? There's a really big deal about a famine when you're living in ancient times. A famine is not just running out of bread at Winco, right? Um, This is not just some normal kind of movement of El Nino in the Palestinian area. Uh, There's something real suspicious going on because David's looking around at his peoples and he's realizing people are dying of starvation and rain has stopped falling. And David knows the law. He knows Leviticus 26. He knows Deuteronomy 28 that here he is, the king of Israel at the height of Israel's history resting underneath what's called the Davidic covenant, the promise of God's blessing upon David and those that would come after him. And yet we're looking at not just one year, not just two years, but three consecutive years of no rain that causes famine in the land, leading to no doubt the death of various Israelites. So David, knowing the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, does what he should do as the leader of Israel. He inquires of the Lord. And we don't know, you know, David's a prophet. We don't know if he went to the tabernacle. Did he have a prophet speak to him? Did he go 
to the Urim and Thummim. We're not really sure, but we do know that the Lord answers right away. Before we get to the Lord's answer, however, let's just let's give ourselves a little bit of review about this whole concept of blessing and cursing that we have laid out for us in Leviticus 26 to the first generation of Israel, Deuteronomy 28 to the second generation of Israel. God had promised that if the people of Israel would obey his words and uh, that he would bless them with national blessings. But if they violated this covenant, this agreement between themselves and Yahweh, that God would make sure he would guarantee as a witness of the covenant to bring covenant cursing upon the people of the land. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but in Leviticus 26, where we have this first reading of this covenant, the Lord says in verse 15, uh, he says, basically, if you despise my statutes and if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you perform, do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant. And then the paragraph goes on and on. It says, I will set my face against you. Verse 18, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Verse 19, I will make your heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. What's that's a reference to? No rain. Um, verse 20, your land shall not yield its produce. The trees will not yield their fruit. Verse 21, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Verse 24, I will punish you seven times for your sins. Verse 26, I have cut off your supply of bread. Verse 28, I will chastise you seven times for your sins. What do you hear the Lord saying over and over again in Leviticus 26? I will punish you seven times for your sins. This is part of the covenant curse. And so David knows the law and he says, this is not just a normal famine. I'm going to inquire of the Lord. And so what does the Lord say in the second half of the first verse? He doesn't wait. The Lord answers right away. It is what? Because of Saul and the blood guilt of his house, because he killed whom? The Gibeonites. So it's clearly the Lord that has caused this famine. This wasn't just some sort of natural phenomena. God had brought this famine upon the land because of covenant curses. When David inquires of the Lord, he's very quick to give him revelation and say, here's why famine is on the land. It's because of Saul and the blood guilt in his house for killing the Gibeonites. Who are the Gibeonites? Well, one of their cities, there's four cities that are listed in Joshua that you guys could read on your own. Uh, the city Gibeon is actually today, it's modern LG, but six miles northwest of Jerusalem and the tribal area of Benjamin. And, um, and these were the ones who had made this kind of tricky covenant with the Israelites. You guys remember, even if you didn't read this week, you guys remember Israel's commanded to come into the land and basically wipe out all the Canaanites, right? The Canaanites are elsewhere listed by various names. Hivites, um, Gibeonites are part of the Hivites. Um, and then other places they're called Amorites. Amorites is more of a big, all-inclusive term. Well, the Gibeonites hear what has happened. They know what happened in Egypt. They've heard about uh, Joshua's destruction of Jericho and Ai and these various kings. And so they send forth an envoy uh, that basically comes and pretends like they're not part of this land. 
Remember, they dress up in old clothes. They bring moldy bread. They bring wineskins that look like they're very old. And they basically trick Joshua and the leaders into making a covenant with them. Say, we're from a land far away from here. You don't have to worry about us. We're not part of those wicked Canaanites. We just want to make a covenant with you because we know that you guys are bad dudes. And we want to serve you. And we want to make sure that you guys leave us alone. And so Joshua and the leaders in Joshua 9.14, what do they not do? They do not inquire of the Lord. They look at what they're saying. They sit down. They have a covenant meal with them. They actually probably partake of this moldy bread. They cut this covenant, as it were. All of a sudden, three days after they go through this covenant-making ceremony, they realize, wait a second, these guys are Canaanites. But guess what? They decide we cannot violate this covenant because we've sworn before who? The Lord. Even though these guys tricked us into this covenant, even though these are peoples that we were supposed to come in and kill by God's order, we dare not touch them because we have sworn by Yahweh to keep our word that we swear before God. And so they allow the Gibeonites to, to survive and they become what the technical term is, Nethanim. Nethanim is just a fancy word basically that means these were going to be woodcutters and water carriers on behalf of the temple. And the Gibeonites, as history develops, they just get folded into this group that are used by the Levites. So God comes along and he brings famine. And when when David inquires of the Lord, why is there famine? He says it's because Saul has killed these people, these Gibeonites. And his whole house has the, the guilt of blood on them. This sounds very strange to our ears. But this is the messy business of covenant uh, guarantorship. God is a witness of this covenant, and he decides that he will be the one that maintains this covenant. And he calls upon David, who is king at this time, to be the mediator of this particular covenant. We're not sure of the exact date of these happenings. Notice that it just says it's sometime in the days of David. We know it's sometime after Mephibosheth comes into the household in 1 Samuel 9. But we really don't know where exactly this takes place in David's, uh, in David's uh, history. And it seems like that's on purpose. The Holy Spirit through the writer of 2 Samuel is not really given us a time date. This whole section on the back end of 2 Samuel, some people call it an appendix. Really, it's just kind of a wrap-up to demonstrate how God was establishing his covenant through David and how David would respond as opposed to Saul in like circumstances. Now, remember Saul, so he's, he's come in and he's killed the Gibeonites. Do we have any evidence of where this happened anywhere else in Scripture? No, there's no other place in any of the historical books that talk about this incident other than right here. But we do know that Saul did crazy things like this. Remember, he tried to pin David against the wall with a spear, did the same thing with his own son, Jonathan. Remember what he did um, to the priests in Abiathar? He comes in and he, he annihilates all of these priests. And so Saul has this crazy reputation uh, for spilling innocent blood and yet deuteronomy nineteen ten tells us uh innocent, innocent blood lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land which the lord your god has given you as an inheritance thus the guilt of bloodshed shall be upon you 
The law indicated that if innocent blood is spilt, there is blood guilt that comes upon that land, not just that person. That's why David says in Psalm 139, verse 19, one of our favorite Psalms, right? That we love to talk about God's omnipresence and he's with us wherever we go. But notice how David wraps it up in his application section on Psalm 139. He says, verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. That's the same word that's being used here in our text. You blood guilt men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. So Saul had violated this covenant and therefore had profaned or taken the name of the Lord in vain by doing so. And it is revealed to David what exactly is to be done. It is, by the way, as a side note, quite a blessing that God actually reveals to David what to do. In most pagan religions, when somebody is underneath some sort of curse, under, underneath, like, say, karma in Hinduism, there's no revelation to know why they're experiencing the karma, why they're experiencing the curse. But God comes along and he tells David, here's exactly why this is going on. Look at verse 2. So the king, what does he do in response? He calls the Gibeonites. That doesn't mean he picked up his cell phone. It means that he called them to himself or he went to them and he spoke to them probably just as the Lord had directed. Notice that the Gibeonites had remained silent up until this time. There's no indication that the Gibeonites had brought any sort of complaint uh, to David. Um, They had just borne the treatment by Saul, this attempted genocide. They did not come and raise a complaint. The Lord had to reveal it to David. Um, No doubt the Gibeonites perhaps would have cried out to the Lord. And this is why the Lord responds. We see evidence in other places of scripture. For instance, uh, Psalm 140 verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the justice of the poor. Proverbs 21, 12, the righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. These Gibeonites who had bound themselves to Israel to come underneath Israel's protection as vassals, as slaves, to really carry their water for them had been violated Attempted genocide had been brought by upon them by the very people who were supposed to protect them. They remained in silence and no doubt cried out to the Lord. And now the Lord has brought a famine on the land and tells David, the king who is now in charge. So David goes to speak to them. And then we get kind of this little little history lesson for the readers who may not know much about the Gibeonites, the original readers. It says right there in the middle of verse 2. Now the Gibeonites were not the children of Israel, but were remnants of the Amorites. Amorite, remember, is kind of a big overarching term for uh, those that lived in Canaan. The children of Israel had sworn to protect them, as we saw in Joshua chapter 9 and 10. We know from extra biblical history that, um, according to an archaeologist, Charles Fincham, an oath once taken cannot be recalled or changed, it can only be broken. Although the Israelites discovered the guile and dishonesty of the Gibeonites, the treaty could not be broken for it was formed under oath in the name of Yahweh. Once once a, a covenant had been made in the name of Yahweh, 
Uh, the people could swear to their own hurt, but they would not change it. By the way, archaeologists have, fo- have found uh, boundary stones and other types of inscriptions that follow the same kind of pattern. There's one particular boundary stone that was uh, found that has to do with the Hittite king, that basically the Hittite is making a covenant to protect vassals in his area. Uh, he says he basically says he's going to protect them. They're going to serve him. If he violates the covenant or if they violate the covenant, may the gods bring curses upon them, including famine and plague. And may our own children have their bodies exposed to the elements. These are these, there's several boundary stones that have been discovered that follow the same kind of pattern that we see here in Second Samuel chapter 21, that when people would make a covenant to one another, they would actually bind themselves to an oath that would involve curses of the gods, or in this case, God bringing those curses upon them for violating that particular oath. And so as we continue to look at the history in verse 2, Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. This is basically kind of a pro-Israel, kind of a nationalistic zeal. You can see why people might not like the Gibeonites because of their trickery. They're not Jewish, right? Here they are getting some of the benefits of the people of Israel. Um, They're foreigners. And so Saul, for whatever reason, gets involved in not just a war with them, but an annihilation, an attempt to wipe them out, a genocide. So verse 3, therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? What is it that you want me to do? It appears that as God had revealed himself the reason for the famine, God had probably also revealed to David how to take care of the famine. Go to the Gibeonites, ask them what were the... Uh, what were the, the specifics of the covenant? What were the specifics of the covenant that has been violated? Is basically what David's asking for. What shall I do to make atonement for this covenant that has been violated by royalty, by your protector? Verse 4, And the Gibeonites said, Well, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house. Why would they say such a thing that we're not going to receive monetary reparations? Well, no doubt that was not part of the covenant. In fact, they probably had been instructed by the law being associated with Israel. In Numbers 35, verse 31 and following, we see, Moreover, quote, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge. Verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land where you are for the blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is except for the blood on it, except for the blood of him who has shed it. So no monetary, nobody's supposed to be able to buy off somebody for shedding innocent blood on the land. And it appears that the Gibeonites know this and they also realize this was not part of of our ancient treaty kind of begs the question, you know, that we started off with our introduction of just the Japanese who had come and remained really silent for a number of years. And then finally get some 
um, reparations for the United States government. I just wonder how it felt for them to receive that $20,000 check for their livelihoods that had been destroyed. Well, in this case, we have God as the guarantor of the covenant, not man. And so God can require much more than would be allowable by man. They go on in verse 4 to say, Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. The Hebrew here is difficult, but the idea seems to be it's really not up to us. We're not allowed to just go be an avenger of blood. We're not allowed just to go attack Saul and attack his children. That's why we've just remained silent all these years, even beyond the death of Saul. So he said, okay, you guys, tell me what you want. What is it that you want me to do for you? And I will do it at the end of verse four. They've said, well, you know, we don't want monetary gain. We really can't go attack Saul's family ourselves. They've said the things that they don't want. So David says, let's cut to the chase. Just tell tell me, what is it that you're asking for? And it seems like what's implied in this statement by David is David now sees himself, understands himself as the mediator of this covenant that's been broken. God had been, he is the guarantor, he's the protector of the covenant. He was the witness there between Joshua and Israel and the Gibeonites to make sure that this covenant has been established. David sees himself as now the mediator. He is now the ruler of Israel who must make sure that amends are made. And so he says, what do you want me to do as the mediator of this covenant that's been cut? I don't know the specifics. Here's what they say. Verse 5. Then they answered the king. And the king is there on purpose. This is the king, the mediator. As for the man who consumed us. And now they're going to get more specific as to the pain that's been caused. And plotted against us that we should be destroyed or exterminated from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. That's, this is the first time they've really been very straightforward with the full scope of the bloodshed. This is all-out premeditated genocide. This is the Holocaust in reverse. This is Israel trying to wipe the, the, the Gibeonites off the planet. This is a massacre that was attempted by Saul. They say in verse 6, Let seven men of the descendants, of his descendants, be delivered to us. And we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. This whole section is dripping with sarcasm or irony and judgment, severity. This should shock us. You know, a lot of times when we read the scriptures, we come up against questions and we think that we're the first ones in 3,000 or 4,000 years that have asked these questions. In reality, the author, the human author, and the author of the Holy Spirit wants us to ask the question. We should be shocked at what the Gibeonites are asking for. They're asking for seven men. This seems to harken back to Leviticus 26. Seven times shall you be punished. They seem to be aware of the cursings of Leviticus 26. Of Saul's descendants. Blood guilt is not just on Saul, it's on his whole house. This can mean a couple different things. One is that the guilt of Saul is is imputed to his progeny as a royalty, which we're going to look at here in just a second. 
It could also imply that his house was also implicated in the genocide. In other words, they kept this feud up. We want seven descendants delivered to us that we may hang them before the Lord. The idea of hang means to to basically kill and expose. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. It's not just hang them the way we would think of hanging somebody. If you watch like some movie, some cowboy movie or something, this is a, uh, a solemn execution and then exposing them uh, to the elements. And notice it's to be before the Lord because the Lord is the, is the witness of the covenant. And it's to be in Gibeah. Where's Gibeah? Gibeah was basically Saul's hometown. Not too far from Jerusalem, hometown and his capital. And notice Saul is called the one whom the Lord chose. This is pure irony. The one who the Lord chose should have behaved better than he did. Why is it like uh, the pirates, they were executed and hung out on the harbor as ships would come in? Why would that happen? As a warning, right? If you want to come to our harbor and start stealing stuff, this is what's going to happen to you. For them to hang up these descendants of Saul right in Saul's own hometown is a warning to everybody who wants to continue this blood feud. This is what the Lord will do to you if you don't let this go. How do I know that thing about the pirates? From watching Pirates of the Caribbean. That's the only way I know that. I have no historical data or research. So if you guys can prove me wrong on that, feel free. But it is true, the idea of hanging them in Saul's hometown was no doubt to be a warning to Saul, anybody there that would be pro-Saul and like so nationalistic and pro-Israel that they wanted to continue this violation of the Gibeonites. But it's also before the Lord because the Gibeonites know what has been said in this covenant and that God is the one that has the guarantor of the covenant or guarantor. Uh, I keep mispronouncing that. Guarantor. Anybody know how to say it? Guarantor is the way you're supposed to say it. Um, notice that this isn't the this isn't the only time that this kind of thing has happened. Actually, we're going to come there in a second. Jeremiah 24. Um, but this this kind of raises a, a question of of why is the Lord allowing for children to be put to death for the sins of fathers, right? Isn't it true that Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen says that children should not be put to death for the sins of their fathers? And that is true in most cases for individual sins, but this is no ordinary thing. This is Saul as the leader of Israel, as a royal monarch representing all of Israel, who has uh, violated this covenant. And so in such a case... It is noted in the Old Testament and in extra biblical literature that children could also fall underneath that particular judgment, as we'll see here in a moment in Jeremiah 24. So what is David's response at the end of verse six? The king said, I will give them. That's all he says. They asked for seven. He says, it'll be done. And so then we look at verse seven and following. And we see some really interesting things and somewhat befuddling things that happen. Verse 17, but the king spared Mephibosheth, 
the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's what? Oath. That was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Don't miss the idea that Saul's name is being used over and over and over again in this narrative passage. David had made an oath with the son of Saul, the son of Jonathan, a a disabled man named Mephibosheth. And God had had told Jonathan that you and I are good and we're going to make this covenant. We're going to swear before the Lord and I'm going to keep my covenant. I will not harm. I will protect Mephibosheth. And so David does the opposite of what Saul does. Saul did not fulfill his role as royal protector. David says, I will fulfill my role as royal protector. One, for the Gibeonites, but two, even though I'm involved in mediating and protecting the Gibeonites in this covenant, I have another covenant that I must also remain faithful to before the Lord, lest some other curse come upon me. He holds back Mephibosheth. Verse 8, so the king took Armani and Mephibosheth. We're like, what in the world? The two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul. This Mephibosheth is a different Mephibosheth. You have Mephibosheth, who is the son of Jonathan. And then you have Mephibosheth, who is the daughter of Rizpah. And so one Mephibosheth is saved. The other one is delivered and handed over to the Gibeonites. Notice it goes on to say, and the five sons of Merab, some of your translations say, some of your translations say the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzali, the Maholathite. This is interesting stuff because probably Michael is the right reading, but people get confused by that. It's actually when you go, when you look over at first Samuel 18, these are the sons of of Merab, who Michael probably raised, as Matthew Henry says. And so these sons of Merab are the ones that are handed over. And she uh, brought them up for Adriel, the son of Barzali, which is not to be confused with his buddy Barzali. You got it? So there's two Barzalis, there's two Mephibosheths, and then there's the confusion of Michael and Merab. Skip all that, look at verse 9. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And what do they do? They hanged them. That means they executed and exposed their bodies. Where? On the hill. That's the hill. What city is this hill near? Gibeah before the Lord. The idea of being before the Lord is the idea is Coram. You know that word we love, that nice Latin phrase, Coram Deo? In the presence of the Lord. They're hanging them coram deo before the Lord, just as Agag was hacked to pieces before the Lord. Saul's descendants are killed and exposed before the Lord. Verse nine, the rest of the the verse says this. So they fell sevenfold at once and were put to death. In the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. This would be around mid-April. What's the significance of these individuals being put to death at the beginning of harvest? There's nothing to harvest. These individuals are being killed while there is nothing to pick. There's nothing to harvest. Everybody's waiting for the Lord to bring rain again so that the people can get harvest and receive God's blessings of Leviticus 26 rather than the cursings 
of Leviticus 26. Now I want you to notice a couple passages of scriptures before we wrap, move to the, the final part of this narrative. I want you to listen to Psalm 9 and write this down. Psalm 9. There's several indications in the Psalms that help develop this whole doctrine of covenant. God's being the, the guarantor or guarantor, no guarantor of the covenant. Um, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 12 of the Psalm says, When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish. These Gibeonites had been had suffered an attempted genocide, had borne it in silence, cried out to the Lord. These are not Jewish people. These are not people who have been part of covenant Israel, but they are part of covenant Israel as Nethanim. And God says to them in such psalms, he will avenge their blood. Listen to Jeremiah 34. Write this down as well. Jeremiah 34, a prophecy. This is a future prophecy that Jeremiah gives. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of Egypt. Skip down to verse 16. Then you turned around and profaned my name. How did they profane their, his name in this particular prophecy? They had agreed to put away their slaves. They had taken slaves of other Jews, but then they had been rebuked for that. They said, okay, we're going to put away our slaves. But then they had buyer's remorse. They're like, oh no, there goes our finances. So then they got their slaves back, their Jewish slaves. And so God comes along and says, what are you doing? You put your slaves, your Jewish slaves away. Now you've brought them back. In verse 17, he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, to the sword, to pestilence, to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, in the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of the king of Babylon, army which has gone back from you that is a crazy passage if you really heard and understand what it's saying what happened here in this part of israel's history israel had agreed to 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 put away to free their poor slaves and then they had buyer's remorse they brought them back they violated the covenant that they had made to put away their slaves god says okay here's what's going to happen now zedekiah you're the king who's supposed to be the protector here. Guess what? Babylon's going to come in. You're going to have famine in the land. Babylon's going to take you captive and your princes will be slain and their bodies will be exposed before the birds and the beasts. Is God allowed to do such a thing? Yes, he is. He's God. 
We're not allowed to do such a thing because we're not God. We're creatures. But God, who is the just God of, of all things, looks at what Zedekiah did, and it happened just like that. Babylon comes in, or Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586. He takes Zedekiah. He takes him away. He kills his children right before his eyes, and then he plucks Zedekiah's eyes out. That's the end of Zedekiah. Does God have the right to perform that kind of justice on the, on the behalf of slaves? A covenant had been made for them to be protected. The covenant had been violated. God says, I am the guarantor of this covenant. I will execute justice upon the house of Zedekiah. That's exactly what we're seeing here with the house of Saul. Now notice how this takes a turn in verse 10. Up to this point, if, if we're reading this text, we stop right there. We just hear Leviticus 26, the curses. We're reminded of the, of the curse uh, that is pronounced on Zedekiah in the future and God's right to be the guarantor of this covenant. But now in verse 10, we have Rizpah, the daughter of Ea. She takes sackcloth, that's from mourning, spreads it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the rains poured on the bodies from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. This whole idea of birds and beasts is repeated all over the Old Testament as one of the curses that would come upon people for special, unusual circumstances like this. Even Goliath, remember Goliath when he's facing off with David, he says, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to give your body for the birds and the beasts, right? So this judgment has fallen upon these seven descendants of Saul, the blood guilt that was also upon them at the very least by imputation, but probably also by their involvement in continuing the feud. The mother of two of them comes out and tries to protect them from the ultimate shame of birds and beasts eating their bodies. How are we meant to read this? We're meant to see the tragedy of the end of Saul's line. That basically Saul's line that involves him breaking covenant with Yahweh, breaking covenant with Gibeonites, killing priests, consulting mediums, ends with one of his concubines trying to keep birds and beasts away from his dead descendants. This whole scene is meant to bring heartbreak to the reader, that this is the consequence of sin. Violation of covenant does not lead us to a good place. Violation of covenant leads us to a place where mothers mourn for their children and the decisions that were made by fathers of children. We're meant to lay down and mourn with Rizpah. And that's exactly what David does. David looks at this scene. In verse 11, David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and the men from the men of Gebesh Gilead, which is about 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem. This is a long way away. 
It stolen them from who had stolen them from the street of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. Go and read First Samuel thirty one if you want to be reminded of all that history of Saul's death and his body being hanged and his body being secretly taken away and so on and so forth and eventually burned. But David basically goes and he exhumes and repatriates the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And then also takes the bones of these other seven. And he treats them with great dignity. Verse 13. So he brought up the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been executed and, and exposed or hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah on the tomb of Kish. His father. The implication is that the other seven would have been buried right with them or right near them. And so David looks upon the cursed house of Saul, this dynasty that ends in such tragedy, and he pays attention to the image of God that is still in this person. He gives him an honorable funeral. Also, there's Jonathan that's involved here who had not violated the covenant but got implicated in all of Saul's sins and Jonathan himself died right I don't know if you've ever been to the funeral of unbeliever but I've had to perform many funerals for unbelievers and that's tough people that you know are in hell and yet what do you say and part of what I say is is I honor the image of God in that person and I take stories that are told about this person and I try to at least give some sort of respect for the fact that this person has made the image of God and while they are dead and in hell, their body still has dignity. And I try to dignify the service and encourage them. But at the same time, uh, I will remind them of that everybody has to call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And that if the, even this unbeliever could come back and stand before you today, they would tell you that you need to know Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And so... David treats these bones with great dignity and then they perform all that the king commanded. And how does God respond at the end? He heeded the prayer for the land. In other words, what Mizpah was waiting for in verse 10, what's implied in verse 10, it began to rain. God's mercy now falls. His wrath had been propitiated. His mercy now begins to fall and we move from cursings to blessings. The David covenant, Davidic covenant, which could never be broken, continues on. The Levitical covenant now moves from the cursing side of the ledger to the blessing side of the ledger because the guarantor of the covenant would not allow the Gibeonites to go unvanquished. And he calls upon his king, David, to be the mediator of this situation. Let's end by applying God's word. This is a, a difficult passage. And as I started this morning, I think some of the most difficult passages in the Bible have a lot to say about us and actually have a lot more to say about us and our own thinking, our own culture than maybe to accuse God. In this particular passage, we see and we've seen that as covenant witness, and guarantor, God stands up for a non-Jewish people, non-Jewish slaves, vassals, because of the covenant violation of Israel through her royalty. And from this passage, I think we've seen two basic observations. 
One, a covenant curse upon Saul's progeny is guaranteed by Yahweh and mediated by David. Let me say that again. A covenant curse upon Saul's progeny is guaranteed by Yahweh and mediated by David. But secondly, a covenant blessing upon Jonathan's progeny is guaranteed by Yahweh and mediated by David. David did not break the covenant with Jonathan. He fulfilled the covenant. He secured Mephibosheth, even though the other Mephibosheth was delivered unto judgment. God sends famine in response to a broken oath. There's blood guilt. The the Gibeonites cry as those in poverty cry to the Lord, and the Lord comes through for the poor. I'm going to read through just a number of lessons that you guys can talk about in your care group. I'm just going to read through them quickly as we press to prayer. Here's some lessons. God listens to the cries of the needy and the vulnerable. Have you been violated by someone or by a group that was obligated to protect you? God will not hold them guiltless. It's one of the lessons we find here. 2 Thessalonians chapter um, 1, read it sometime. Jesus Christ will come and with flaming fire take vengeance upon his enemies. We serve a God that looks out for the poor, that looks out for the violated, and he will not let any sin go unpunished. And he has the right to do so. We don't, right? We're called to leave vengeance to the Lord like the Gibeonites did. But guess what? God, in his exercise of history, does bring all blood guilt to account. Are you in the position of being a protector? You should take your role very seriously. The Bible says, the New Testament says, let not many of us become teachers, for we will receive a what? Stricter judgment. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We find out from this passage that God's ways are not our ways. The difficult passages like this reveal a lot about us and our issues more than God's issues. We also see that God is the first cause of natural phenomena, rain and famine. We, how many times do we, we don't even know as God brought specific judgments upon our planet for very specific purposes. And yet in our post enlightenment age, we want to ignore that. God's judgment has no statute of limitations. We may violate covenants and violate people early in life and pay for it late in life. The sin of leaders and parents are far-reaching, we can learn here. How about our national sins? Violence, abortion, racism, slavery, greed, divorce, covenant-breaking. The Bible says the wages of sin is death and atonement must be made for all sin. And part of what I think we learned in this passage is that the cross is offensive We were just talking about singing about the precious blood of Jesus. But do we remember what that really means? That somebody who committed no sins went to a cross and died on our behalf. That Jesus died in your place, bled his blood. How just is that? Yet Jesus Christ did it for you and for me. The cross is very offensive if we think about it rightly. And we'll end with this. Think about this, that we are all covenant breakers like Saul in some sense. But we can cry out to God like David does for mercy in 2 Samuel 24. We don't have time to go there. When David had himself 
committed a grievous sin. God is merciful to thousands who love him. You can say to yourself, I think most of us, we could maybe have different sins that we could insert here. But most of us, all of us in this room could say, I am a murdering. I am a murdering covenant breaker. I deserve the fate of Saul's seven sons. But there is another Mephibosheth in this text who is rescued because of a covenant kept. And I am beloved of Christ, my covenant keeper. Jesus Christ is the covenant keeper. He was executed and his body was exposed for me. And yet his body was taken down and buried. His bones were not exhumed and and repatriated. He was raised body and bone and ascended to the father where he intercedes and mediates the new covenant for you and for me. Yes, chastisement still comes, but those of us who are in Christ, it now comes for our good. Let us be instructed by both the severity and the mercy of God as we see in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, these are, this is not an easy text, and yet it is in your word. And while there are many who look at your word and mock and question, Lord, you have called us as your children to come at your word and also be shocked by such passages, to be shocked by the sin of breaking covenants. You are a God who guarantees that you will witness covenants that are made, covenants that are made between husband and wife. Covenants that are made between a government and its people. Lord, when we take your name under oath and promise to do such and such. Lord, we are we are called to keep it and you are the guarantor of those covenants. And yet when we reflect honestly upon our lives, there are so many ways in which we have violated your word. And so we come broken. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see what we deserve for our sins in this passage. That the wages of sin really is death. You do not just take sin and sweep it under the carpet. You execute it. And yet we have a Savior who came and fulfilled the whole law and kept the covenant. And he was executed on our behalf that if we would simply believe, if we would simply cry out humility, we could be saved. I pray, Lord, that this morning that there are those in the auditorium that your spirit is moving upon, that they would call upon you, know your, their sin, that they would know they're deserving of judgment, and yet that they would know that Christ propitiates the wrath of God, and they can be delivered from the wrath to come by believing in Jesus and come and be your child. We ask that your spirit would Uh, Help us as we apply this passage, Lord, that you would correct any things in the preaching of your word that do not faithfully represent the text and faithfully represent your heart. We pray, Father, that you would help us to move and grow in light of these things. Also receive our offering as we give to you, as we've covenanted at this church, to give of our uh, offerings freely and willfully and, and willingly so that your gospel may go out and that your church may be built up. So receive this offering, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people said, Amen.